Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far enough. <laughs> Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. England are out of yet another World Cup. The BBC are still defending their ridiculously high pay levels and Boris Johnson wants to build another bridge, this time between Northern Ireland and the mainland of Great Britain. Well, that's not going to happen, is it? More seriously, though, the Prime Minister-to-be has got a lot better ideas after yet another hustings with Jeremy Hunt over in Belfast yesterday. We heard some of that uh, on the show yesterday as well. He's promised to review the so-called sin taxes on foods high in fat, sugar and salt. Boris isn't sure if the taxes actually work and he's claiming quite rightly I think that they are a disproportionately high penalty on people on lower incomes after all we don't live in a police state why should we be told what to eat what to drink when to eat it when to drink it how much exercise to take what we should be putting in our mouths what we should be smoking what we shouldn't be smoking Boris's desire to remove the taxes comes on the same day as we hear the war on smoking has been won and that obesity is now the biggest danger to our health and the biggest risk to contracting cancer as well. Surely all these things must be related, mustn't they? Low rates of smoking and high rates of obesity. Hmm, let me see. Models and supermodels smoke cigarettes so they don't have to eat very much. Smoking uh, is an appetite suppressant. That's why people who smoke tend to be thinner than people who don't. And if obesity is the big problem, why have all the sin taxes had no effect whatsoever over the years? 0344 499 1000. We'll be talking to Tam Fry, chair of the National Obesity Forum, to find out whether he agrees with me that Boris Johnson is on the right track. Coming up later on, we'll find out why more and more of you are rejecting the idea of a TV licence to fund the BBC as per our poll yesterday. Why the government is issuing gagging orders to contractors working on the HS2 project. What have they got to hide? And why Tesco's are now saying Brexit is going to ruin everybody's Christmas. And one final thing, what have you got in your attic? Anything interesting? Anything worth a few bob? That one guy found a piece from a chess set that turned out to be worth over seven 
£100,000. It's all happening right here on Talk Radio, 0344 499 1000. This is The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, there are many things that the uh, government can do for people in this country. They can raise taxes and thereby uh, collect more money for the government to spend on more useless uh, apparatus like HS2, a train that will go slightly faster to the Midlands than the train that you can currently get today. They would also waste billions and billions of pounds of your money on something called Brexit, which hasn't even happened yet. They would also waste loads and loads of money on things like the BBC, which we will talk about in some uh, detail a little bit later on as well. But Boris Johnson has come up with a good idea. He says that these sin taxes, the taxes on things like uh, fatty foods, on foods with high salt content, on foods that are supposedly not very good for you, are actually a waste of time and they are disproportionately punishing poorer people because poorer people tend to eat those kinds of food. And also, if you put a sales tax on anything, of course it's going to disproportionately affect the people who have less money because it's a higher proportion of their income which is being taken away in tax. Let's talk to Tam Fry, Chair of the National Obesity Forum, to find out what he makes of it all. Tam, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning to you, and I disagree with you. Um, well, that doesn't surprise me, Tam, but let me explain to you why you should agree with me, right? Because if, for example, all of these sin taxes are so effective in cutting down the amount of horrible fatty and salty foods that people are eating, why have we got such an obesity problem in this country still? Because we've only had what you refer to as a sin tax for one year, and it's going to take much more than a year for the effects of that uh, to come through. Uh, the sugary drinks uh, industry levy, which came in in April uh, of, of last year, actually is a success and has astounded everybody. Well, how, do you, how do you measure that success, Tam? You measure the success by the quantity of sugar that is going into our fizzy drinks. Um, before the uh, levy came in, uh, people were stuffing sugar into their drinks. And then when the Chancellor got up in the House of Commons and said, we're going to levy you if you do all that, they immediately turned around and said, why are we paying the government all this money? Let's take the sugar out. And almost immediately, sugar started to disappear. And in fact, the news is better, and this will disappoint you, because it's now offering people a choice of paying less for a, a healthy drink uh, so that it doesn't break the bank. And at the same time, they're not consuming the sugar, which is a huge danger, uh, particularly in terms of obesity, but also in other things. So what so sorts of drinks are they no longer drinking then? They're not the fizzy drinks. Well, I've found uh, that's a very wide area. Can you be a bit more specific, Tab? Yeah, there are only two fizzy drinks, one made by Coca-Cola and one made by, by Pepsi, uh -huh. that actually now have to pay the higher levy. All the other drinks, and that is Iron Brew, which was well known for being stuffed with sugar, has come down so that they escape the levy. So and you're telling that me that Iron Brew is now a healthy drink? Absolutely. I, the new <laughs> Iron Brew, the new Iron Brew, has astounded everybody by being sugar-free, and Iron Brew are actually profiting. And if you want some figures, Coca-Cola, that used to make a fortune on the fizzy drinks now say that, in fact, 50% increase in their non-sugary drinks and a 12% decline in their fizzy drinks. And that has got to be a huge benefit to everybody. Now, it's going to take two or three, four years, maybe, for the effect of that to work its way through. And, of course, it needs to have help from other areas. Why I'm so cross with Mr. Johnson this morning is that he has said they're all sin taxes. But in fact, if you start to then uh, tax the sugar and the fat and the salt, 
which the three of them are injurious to health, then you are going to have ultimately a great effect on obesity. But it's going to take time and it's going to take a lot of thought. Uh, Tam, you uh, know as well as I do that while this particular tax that we're referring to may have only been in for a year, the war on obesity has been going on a lot longer than that. And quite, quite frankly, um, if in fact people are supposed to be being educated about how being obese is bad for you, then that, whatever the messages are, they're not working. Uh, you talk about it being a war, and I would agree, but unfortunately the guns are firing in the wrong direction. All we have been doing at the moment is trying to bring uh, people who are overweight or obese down in terms of healthy weight. We have done absolutely nothing uh, to prevent obesity happening in the first place. So what is now needed, and I think that there is a movement now, and I'm just about to go into the chief medical's office to argue this, is we need to have a much more concerted effort with our children to stop them picking up bad eating habits and good exercise and, and, and have good exercise habits before they get to the age where the uh, fizzy drinks and the, uh, the burgers take over. We have done nothing whatsoever to really look at obesity building up in the early years of a child's life. When you think that 25% of our yeah, but child why, population... Why should that be the state's job? Surely the parents have an ob obligation there. My parents, parents. My parents um, did not raise me to be a fat person. I have become a fat person in later life because I gave up smoking, quite frankly, and that's the one reason uh, why it's happened. But the, when I was yep. a child, I was taught how to eat properly by my parents, and I didn't need, they didn't need the state to tell them. No, and, and that, that is absolutely brilliant, and, and I'm delighted for you. The problem, however, is that when you were a child, it was probably 20 years ago, where things were different, but now... If only it was 20 years ago, you'd be lucky. OK, fine. 30 years, 40 years. Your, your parents were brilliant, and you, you, you have uh, listened to them, kept the messages. But unfortunately, now we have a totally different system of eating and we snack and we don't sit down to meals. That's not true either. But some people do, Tam. I mean, I'm also a parent now and my children are not obese. And I have to say, one of the reasons for that is we don't allow them to sit around all day eating packets of crisps and bars of chocolate and drinking Coca-Cola. And that's what okay. parents should be doing. It's not the Absolutely. state's job. I don't want my government coming into my house and telling me what to do. In your republic, Mr. Graham, you are a model and ideal parent. But unfortunately, we have millions of parents who have not the first idea about food, what food to eat, how to prepare it, and how much to eat. And therefore, we've got to have some kind of initiative from the government to actually say to the food industry, calm down with all the things that you're putting in food, so it makes the modern no, generation I, I, I could not disagree more, Tam, because it's a very slippery slope. Because the next thing you know, they'll say, for some reason, we don't think bananas are very good for you, so we're going to ban the import of bananas and we're not going to make them available to you. Or, for example, they're going to say, you know, apples have got too much sugar in them, you can't eat apples and you can't drink apple juice. I do not wish to give any more permission to any government or any organisation to stipulate what I put into my mouth. The one thing that the government is doing, and, and, and uh, not very successfully at the moment, but they're working at it, is to actually bring moderation into the language. Bananas are fine in moderation. Apples are fine in moderation. But if you eat too much of one particular product, which is less than healthy, you are going to suffer the consequences of it. 
Yeah, but I mean, you, 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 this stuff never ends, Tam. I appreciate you've got a, 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 a special interest here, and, and you know, I, I admire what you do as much as you admire what I do. But let's not have, yes. you know, an overwhelmingly ridiculous sort of fawning show on t on radio. What I want to so, say is that I don't believe and I don't trust politicians to run the government. Never run to, never mind to run society and to run my life and to legislate every time you think some individual is doing something because they're too stupid to work out what they should be doing. You know, that doesn't mean you punish the whole of society. No, I'm starting to now uh, agree with your uh, line of reasoning. See, I knew you would. Uh, when, when I come and join the Republic, I actually ask to be the Minister for Health, <laughs> and I will actually tell you how, in fact, without nannying, without lecturing, we can actually improve the quality of life for all the people who have to eat to live. That is the major problem. And we've got to make the healthier living cheaper, and we've got to say to the people who are manufacturing all the junk, Stop manufacturing junk, bring it down to reasonable levels of fats or sugar so that you can please Mike Graham and we will all be happy. So will you reserve a seat for me at your cabinet table? By so all means, Tab, I, I could not imagine a more worthy uh, champion of, of health because you do speak a lot of sense, but, I, but I, I can see that you, like me, are wary of politicians because they don't do what they say they're going to do, generally speaking. They love to put taxes on things. And I'd like to know, for example, I don't know whether you do, where all this sin tax money is currently going. Is it going on re-education classes for people about food or is it just going back into the coffers of the government? No, it's not. It's all hypothecated. And in fact, the £340 million which the uh, Treasury has collected as a result of the sugary drinks levy is going into breakfast clubs in schools and also into schools for additional sport. And those are two areas which are absolutely vital. So all that money goes straight into those two projects. We know that it's going there. It's not weighted on potholes or celebrations in the Whitehall, whatever. It's going to actually doing useful things which have been identified. And that is the value of it, because then the public knows that what they are doing is actually not only helping them, but is actually helping other people at the same time. But isn't there also a danger, and you'll know more about this than I do, uh, and, and when my children were much younger, I was more concerned about it. There were things like smoothies. There were things, there were things which purported to be healthier drinks for children who would market themselves as such because technically they had less sugar or less um, saturated fat or whatever. However, it turned out they weren't very good for them at all, and in fact, they were just as unhealthy, rather like when you go into a fast food joint like McDonald's and you have the salad option instead of the... The Big Mac. In fact, it's got even more calories. What I'll be telling the Chief Medical Officer's Office today is that we've got to have a system whereby the food industry are told enough is enough. They can put in the fat, they can put in the salt, they can put in the sugar, but to actually put in excessive quantities is not good. Uh, and in the end, it's going to rebound on the health in, on, on the food industry because over time, people will start to realise that it's not good, and they will, perforce, have to remodify, to reformulate, as it's called in the jargon, and they'll have to bring their levels down, just like has happened with uh, with fizzy drinks. So, uh, but, I, but you see, I would say that the jury's still out on fizzy drinks. I mean, I, I won't, I won't, I will not challenge your your greater knowledge of, of of the situation with Pepsi and Coke. But I'd be astonished if you're literally going to sit there and tell me that drinks like Fanta, 7-Up, Sprite, uh, you know, all sorts of other fizzy drinks that you can buy, which are still fizzy and still taste very sweet, are actually good yep. for you. They're not good for you. They're not good for you, but in fact, if you like that taste, they are better than the classic Coke. 
uh, and Fanta and Sprite, they've had lots of sugar taken out of it. Uh, it tastes good. People still want to do it, but they're not actually ingesting so much sugar as they used to because sweeteners are being used, which are either natural sweeteners or sweeteners which don't have uh, such a high sugar content. They may not have, but they could be very high and, and carcinogenic, mightn't they? Yes. Uh, I, I personally, if I may so so on your show, would advise everybody to stick to water and just stick off the fizzy drinks. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't have uh, a republic uh, um, on radio which can <laughs> preach that. Well, I can message. preach that, and I shall do it on your behalf because that's what I do. I have never Please drunk do. fizzy drinks in my life. I don't like them. Uh, I just oh. don't. I, I don't like the way they taste. And actually, and my kids alive. don't really like them. And I'm, well, I'm still alive. Some would say barely, but I'm still alive, <laughs> and I'm actually much more healthy for not smoking. But generally, but, but honestly. And, and I don't mean to be facetious in saying this, surely there might be a link between, particularly in poorer areas, people giving up smoking because smoking has become, you know, something of a, uh, of a, of a almost a, a disgusting habit that people don't want to do anymore. Um, and, and the raising, rising levels of obesity, because there, there's no doubt that if you smoke, you eat less. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but this is a message which has got to be repeated and repeated and repeated. So I want to hear you on your show at least once a week, mm. maybe better once a day. Start to get those messages out to your viewers who actually understand who you are and respect what you say. And we'll give you all the help that I can if you care to, to telephone me and, and uh, ask my opinion. Well, listen, I'm more than happy to do that. But, of course, I would always shrink away from any instruction from anybody uh, outside of the Republic. So, for the moment, I won't uh, absolutely s sell myself to you. But how about this from uh, Bet? Let's finish on this. She has sent in um, a tweet directed at you, Tam. How does Tam think other countries manage to eat healthily? Poland has a healthy diet without taxing sugar. Surely you should educate the children about healthy food. And that starts with the parents. And that's also being done uh, in schools. Schools uh, scrapped uh, domestic science. Schools scrapped cooking. They're now starting to bring it back. And it's going to take some time for that to take effect. But Margaret Thatcher and, and the politicians back in the last century thought we didn't have to do anything because everybody would be happy. But no, they're not. They're eating themselves to death. These are the figures we have two-thirds of the population which are overweight. That is a ridiculous situation to be in, and anything that can be done to change that around should be done. And one of the ways to do that is to make the healthier food cheaper so that, in fact, they can go and, and reform their eating habits. But it's going to take a long time, and uh, I'm afraid I'm going to be dead before I see the end <laughs> of this. But I hope that you're still alive to see the promised time. We shall see, Tam. Thank you very much, as ever, uh, for joining us here in the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Tam Fry, Chair of the National Obesity Forum. I don't agree with a lot of what he says. He agrees with some of what I say. So we surely have learned, learned something from one another. But lots of you are tweeting me, and you can tweet us, of course, at Talk Radio, at IROMG. But I want you to call me as well, 0344 499 1000. Because let me tell you this, there is absolutely no evidence to suggest that people paying more money or being taxed more money for sweeter drinks are actually not spending their time drinking those drinks. And to tell me that Iron Brew is now healthier than Coca-Cola, really? I've got some interesting uh, facts for you and figures coming up next. This is Talk Radio. More gun talk from a water pistol from the farmer of fury. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Oh! 
This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, 0344 499 1000. You know what to do. You can tweet us at Talk Radio. We've got a great one here from Olivia uh, in Kent who says maybe what they should do is only add tax at the till if they are already obese. It can go towards their hospital care later on. <laughs> That's a great idea. So you only actually tax the people who you think have actually already done too much food that particular day or in this particular lifetime. And you start hitting them up for more money and you see what they take out of the basket. And if you say, if you take that out, that will save you a tenner. Is it really worth it? I think that's a much better idea. Much more sense coming from the public, of course, as ever, uh, on this show than anything else. Let's talk now, though, to Joshua Wong, uh, a man who's been involved in the activism over in Hong Kong uh, in recent days and weeks. The protests have been going on now. Uh, we talked yesterday uh, to an expert who said, we don't actually know what's going to happen next. Police have used pepper spray. They've fired tear gas. They've told the UK to back off, basically. No country has the right to intervene in our business, is what China is saying uh, in a very strong message to the UK. UK government. Uh, let's find out from Joshua what's happening. Joshua, very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Hi. Thanks very much for joining us, Joshua. Uh, tell us what the situation is today, if you could. I was hit by tear gas uh, during the anniversary of Hong Kong handover on the street. Under the hardline suppression of Beijing and Hong Kong, two million out of seven million population come out to have the largely peaceful rally, urge government to withdraw and terminate the extradition bill. That might extradite Hong Kong citizens to China to face unfair trials. However, Beijing and Hong Kong government still ignore the voice of people. And as far as your, your personal safety is concerned, um, you are obviously a known figure to the Chinese, to the, to the authorities. Are you scared that uh, you might get arrested again? Are you frightened that they might do more harm to you? Activists have been arrested in the past few weeks under the crackdown on human rights. I'm not sure how many years of jail sentence my colleagues need to face, my teammates need to face. But how police use rubber bullets, headshot on activists, is the thing that we never imagined happened in Hong Kong. That seems the thing that happened in the Tiananmen Square massacre three decades ago. Yeah. And as far as Tiananmen Square and that kind of mindset is concerned, are you sure that China would not do that again? No one could guarantee PLA in Hong Kong is just nearby um, Hong Kong government headquarters. We urge international communities to keep their eyes in Hong Kong and continue the fight. And the UK, of course, has been told by China, uh, basically, that it's none of our business what China does in Hong Kong ever since the handover uh, many, many years ago. Um, what happens now, Joshua? Are you in a sort of stalemate situation? From a moral perspective, UK signed on the Sino-British Joint Declaration. They should guarantee Hong Kong with high degree autonomy. Judicial independence will not be eroded by Beijing. From a pragmatic perspective, the extradition bill might extradite UK citizens live in Hong Kong or visitors from UK travel to Hong Kong, extradite people from London or from UK to China face unfair trial. There's no reason for international communities to ignore the voice of Hong Kong people. It's not only eroding Hong Kong's people's freedom, but any foreigners live in Hong Kong or travel to Hong Kong is also under threat. So do you want us to come there? Do you want us as, as Western Europeans to visit Hong Kong and to challenge that? It's not a must visit to Hong Kong, but it's important for politicians in European countries keep their eyes in Hong Kong. 
just like Chairman Ray Hunt just announced that UK will not export police weapons and equipment to Hong Kong police force due to the virility and violence of Hong Kong police to a peaceful activist. I think that's a good move to take reference for other world leaders. Okay. Well, Joshua, thank you very much for talking to us and uh, good luck with the uh, campaign. And let's hope that it remains peaceful or as peaceful uh, as it can be uh, and that China learns the lessons that it should have learned uh, three decades ago. Uh, let's see. Coming up, uh, we're going to talk to John Nicholson very shortly uh, about the BBC and how a front-page story on The Times this morning backs up exactly everything that we talked about yesterday and the poll that we held yesterday uh, in which I said, is it time the BBC stopped uh, charging people for a licence? And it was 94% in favour of yes, TV licence sales down for the first time in a decade. Nearly 26 million were purchased, but that's 37,000 down on the year before, despite the country's rising population. Before we do any of that, though, let's just check in uh, with the old uh, Brexit countdown clock because I want to find out if we are, with all of these hustings going on, any closer to not leaving the European Union on October the 31st. Let's have a listen to the clock. sound like it's getting any closer. Confidence is not high that we're leaving the European Union on October the 31st, I'm afraid. Let us welcome, though, John Nicholson, a man uh, who often sits in this chair when I'm not here and also uh, who occupies the Sunday night slot, Sunday 4 to 7, uh, a show not to be missed. John, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Hello, very good morning to you as well. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, kind of, uh, kind of ironic in a way that the countdown music introduced this segment because, of course, <laughs> it's not a BBC-owned theme uh, because if it was, we'd probably be having to pay them through the nose for it. But how shocked are you to see that not only has the BBC increased its sort of pay to the top stars of the BBC, not only is it hiding some of the money it pays through production companies, but even the boss of the studio's got a £200,000 bonus, God knows why, uh, on top of his £400,000 salary. BBC salaries are absolutely ludicrous, Mike. When I was an MP and sat in the House of Commons, I was on the Commons Select Committee. Now, mm. you probably know what these select committees are, they're the the groups of MPs and they sit and they cross-examine folk who turn up to give evidence. Yeah. And I was very, very keen when we wrote our report on the BBC, the presenter's pay should be published. And the BBC was determined that we didn't do that. And i tell you why I wanted it published. I thought it would show a huge gender pay gap. I also thought they would show very few black people in the, in the top mm. pay earners. Right. Um, and I thought it would also show just the ludicrously high salaries the BBC presenters were paid and uh, we were lobbied heavy, heavily by the BBC for this not to happen. But in the end, they accepted our recommendations. They didn't have any choice. And then, of course, you remember, there was a big fuss when presenters' pay was, uh, was published. We saw that big gender pay gap. But what I thought should happen is that the top-earning men should see big drops in their salaries, not that the women should have their salaries mm. put up to even more absurd levels to catch up with the men, which is what happened. Yeah, because people's uh, general reaction to, to this report that came out yesterday, and we did it on the show um, yesterday uh, morning as well, uh, was that sort of incredulity that, that some people who apparently are quite decent and sitting in front of a camera 
reading the news. But half a million quid a year for that? I mean, it just does, and it, it doesn't it's stack up for me. Much. And it doesn't stack up for me that it's a it's a competition style, you know, salary. That if we didn't pay them this money, they'd all go off somewhere else and make it elsewhere. Where? That's not true. Where? I mean, where they just we know that they don't leave. Uh, you, you you very rarely see uh, top level uh, BBC presenters uh, leaving right. because they know that they're not going to make those kind of salaries and not have that profile elsewhere. If you're a presenter on the Today programme on the BBC and they've got crackingly good presenters, but where would they go if they left the Today programme? Where would they go in the commercial sector where they'd be given that kind of salary for doing that kind of job? They just the opportunities aren't available, and the BBC should know that. I mean, Fiergal Keane the... is, a, is a very good reporter. He's one of those that reporter. I enjoy watching his reports. He's, he's intrepid, he puts his life in danger, but he's getting 200 grand a year. I mean, it doesn't. Yeah. It, it bears no resemblance. It's not as if everyone who does his job gets that either. No, I, and there's a, there's a huge disparity. We saw that with the, uh, Carrie uh, Gracie, the BBC China yeah. editor, who was the one who led the campaign after the publication of the salaries, saying... How unfair is it that I, living in China, you've just been doing your China interview there, a very difficult country to live in, and she gets, she, she learned fluent Chinese. Mm. Why is she being paid much less than the bloke who, who does the job in Washington? He's a perfectly good presenter, but it's on a quarter of a million pounds a year to sit in Washington. I mean, just absurd mm. amount of money, I think. It really and is. Of course, people are angry about this, as you say, because of the whole issue uh, about the BBC license fee. Now, I think they're completely different uh, issues. Uh, and I thought the BBC made a terrible mistake to allow itself to be bullied under Tony Hall, who's the boss of the BBC, into accepting responsibility for pensioners' license fees, because that is government social policy. It's mm. nothing to do with the BBC. And I said at the time in the House of Commons that the BBC should never have agreed to do that, because under George Osborne, uh, the, the government, the Tory government, tried previously to get the BBC to do this. And the BBC bosses said, we'll all resign en masse if you force us to do it. And so the government backed down. But Tory Hall, the current boss, didn't have the guts to do that. No, quite. And what do you make of the Times story today in which it says that TV licence sales have fallen? Because I'm getting a lot of anecdotal evidence, albeit on social media, and I know that you can't necessarily make policy based upon that, but a lot of people are exchanging information with each other that they gave up the paying the licence. Uh, they were then uh, visited by the uh, goons, as they call them, of the BBC, asking why they haven't paid, and they basically chase them away. And if that sort of thing starts to take hold, more and more people will basically go, well, do you know what? If they're not going to drag me off to jail, I'm just not going to pay it. Well, there's, there's certainly some parts of the UK where there is an upturn in people not paying the licences. In Scotland, for example, where the BBC is more unpopular than anywhere else in the UK, uh, there is a, a sharp increase in the number of people paying the licences. I've got to say, I think the licence fees, very good value for the amount of stuff that you get from the BBC myself. Yeah, well, it is, but on the other hand, it's when you're, when you're forced to pay for something that you may not necessarily wish to pay for, that's well, when it becomes to. problematic. You're not forced. Well, you are. If you have a TV, you have to have a license. Well, yeah, but if you if you if you um, if you if you don't want to if you don't want to uh, watch the BBC, you don't. No, you know that's not true. You say, you no, that's say, not well, true, John. If you, well, you if you have to, if you have a TV, you, you can get, write to them. Yeah, you but, can write to them and say I, uh, you can write to them and say, and I know lots of people have done this. You can write to them and say I don't watch any terrestrial television. I know I, I understand the point you're making that if you're watching Sky, you still have to pay yeah, for a license. Exactly. Yeah, no, I, I, of course, I, of course, I. And that I is, that. and that is, I, I think, that, the thing course, that sticks in, and that sticks in everybody's craw because and that like irritates people. But yeah. you know yourself, Mike, and I'm not here to defend the BBC, but you know yourself that uh, you know Sky is a lot, lot more expensive uh, than. 
than the, than, yeah, you know, the, but I don't the get BBC. a bill from, but I don't get a bill from Sky, uh, and I don't watch Sky. I watch Sky News, but I don't have a Sky package. But if I got a bill from Sky, even though I didn't watch it, I'd be pretty um, upset. Mike, uh, you're telling me something that I know, which is that the whole issue about the BBC license is uh, extraordinarily um, controversial, and a lot of people object to it. What we haven't quite worked out yet is what a better system is. How could you better fund the BBC? Yeah. And when I was an MP, we looked into this very closely and we looked at different models around the world and the consensus across all the parties that sat on the select committee was that we couldn't find a better model for the type of broadcasting that the BBC um, offers. But there's still huge problems for the BBC. I mean, the question of partiality is one that is often raised. I mean, I, I myself, I worked in the BBC off and on for, for years. I think BBC journalists try their very best to be impartial, but the, 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 the overall tone of the BBC, if you work there as an institution, is very pro-establishment, I think. And I think that, uh, I think that um, uh, infuses itself uh, throughout the corporation and a whole host of different uh, areas. I mean, I've worked in the BBC much less than you have, but I'm, I've always noticed that they try so hard to be impartial that it kind of cancels itself out and they end up not being impartial at all. Not because they want to be impartial, but because they're sort of, you know, they're trying so hard to be to be impartial that it's not working. And and I'm not even sure if they they know what the establishment is either, because I think in, in different parts of the BBC, the establishment means different things. It, it does, but I think there's a real problem, for instance, if you have somebody like Tony Hall, who's the boss of the BBC, who's a member of the House of Lords. Mm. I mean, wh why, why is a journalist, and that's what he was before he went off to the Royal Opera House and then came back to the BBC, why, is he, why, is he a, why did he accept a peerage so that he could sit in the House of Lords? Yes. I mean, you, I don't think journalists should take titles of any kinds at all, and the last thing they should do is accept uh, seats in the, in, in the Lords, because... You're meant to be uh, outside the political system. You're meant to be cheeky and questioning. That's who the very best journalists are. Uh, you're, you're meant not to be beholden to any one party or the establishment in any way. And I, I just think it sets entirely the wrong tone when um, the, the boss of the BBC is... Um, is, is uh, sitting there in um, in Ehrman, yes. in, uh, in the bench. I know. Well, I mean, it's in unbelievable, really, why the House of Lords is even there, but that's another conversation for another time, John. Thank you very much indeed. John Nicholson, back here on Talk Radio uh, at four o'clock on Sunday, of course, and every Sunday. Uh, lots more for us to talk about. We'll take more of your calls today on the BBC because John says they can't come up with a better way of funding the BBC. Well, I can, and I bet you can as well. Why do we have to pay this ridiculous licence fee uh, even if we don't want to watch any of it? 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk Radio. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, we've had plenty of Project Fear conversations over the years, have we not? We've heard about how there will be no drugs available in this country if we leave the European Union, how there won't be any cars, there won't be any champagne, there won't be any food, there won't be any uh, toast, there won't be any ability to fly anywhere because airspace will be completely clogged up because nobody will know what's going on. We won't have any defence forces left, you won't be able to get a ferry to France, all of those nonsensical things have proven to be completely and utterly unfounded. Now, the latest is that we hear from the boss of Tesco's that, frankly, uh, they won't be able to plan for their Christmas sales because they won't know what we're doing because we won't be leaving the European Union or knowing whether we're leaving the European Union until October 31st. Let's talk to Claire Bailey from the Independent uh, Retailers Expertise Department to find out exactly what is the problem here. Claire, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. Has Dave Lewis gone a bit mad? No, not at all. Uh, the 31st of October, of course, is Halloween. And pretty much within days of Halloween, we will all remember walking down supermarket aisles, which have been dramatically transformed into Christmas. Yes. Advent calendars, cards, decorations, non-perishable gifts. It's just that sort of flick of the switch and it all appears. Yes. Of course, that is sitting in warehousing for up to a month before. And the orders for that stock are placed with suppliers from February. As in, it's already happened. Yeah, They've course. already committed to good. So then if you think about that, that, they've managed their supply chain down to the maximum of the, like the last pound because they, they keep it very lean. They don't have the, uh, surplus distribution space. They don't have surplus transport. And they manage it right down to the nth degree. Now we're adding in that there's going to be a potential rush on anything from tinned Italian tomatoes to Spanish wine to French champagne in the run-up to Christmas and beyond for people stockpiling because they have no idea what's going to happen to the retail price of those products if there is a no-deal Brexit or even if there is a deal Brexit that means that tariffs change and the price of all those goods shipped in from overseas goes up. So at the moment in time when retailers are managing the maximum sales, and it, it can often for many of the retailers bank up to 60% of their annual profits in that last six weeks before Christmas, we've also got the compounding effect of panic buying. And I think he's quite right. The distribution infrastructure and the supply chains that sit behind not just Tesco's, but all of our UK major retailers who buy from overseas are going to be stressed beyond belief. Yeah, well, that's his job, though, isn't it? I mean, his idea of running a company which has no unexpected interruptions is a sort of Nirvana-like love and wish that was never going to be the case. You know, we've known for a while, and I presume, as you said, he was expecting all of this to happen on uh, March the 29th, but it didn't yeah. happen on March the 29th. And, I mean, while people might panic by, uh, I would certainly urge them not to do that, you know, if you can't buy some tin tomatoes for your spaghetti bolognese, I guess what? Buy some fresh tomatoes and use those instead. It'd be better for you anyway. But the They'll be line, shipped from overseas as well, though, won't they? So you can it, grow it, tomatoes it, in Kent. You can, but not in October. So the problem is, obviously, fresh produce is under the greatest constraint because as a nation, we don't eat purely food grown in the UK. It's shipped in from all over the world. Now, yes, it can be well beyond the EU. You get beans from Kenya and bananas from the Caribbean. But the fresh food supply chain is very immediate. You certainly can't stock up on that. And it's also very costly. Massive carbon footprint as well for those who are worrying about the ethics of Well, it. I mean, if you but keep with the carbon footprint, you'll be able to grow tomatoes in Kent in October. It's going to be both ways. <laughs> 
know. You might be able to, actually. <laughs> it's not a bad argument. Uh, although possibly... All my arguments are good. No, but, no, no, but the point is, though, this guy runs a supermarket chain, yeah. one of the biggest in the world, right? I have no sympathy for him whatsoever if he can't organise himself. And if he can't do the job, get somebody in who can. The thing is, though, the, the, the government was supposed to have dealt with this in March when it wasn't going to be such a crunch time for UK retail. It's been pushed back to the mm. end of October, which is quite beyond the control of anyone running any business. Yes, OK, they can manage the risk of things not coming out the way they should, but there's only finite capacity in terms of our ports. Our ports can only land so many containers. Our transport network can only move so many lorries. And our warehouse infrastructure can only handle so many goods. So it is potentially a risk. He's quite right to say it's a risk. He's not saying it's going to happen. He's just saying that if this, the panic buying scenario, happens, then that may be an issue for all UK retail. It's not just... Yes, but Tesco, let's not all stand here like ingenues pretending that this is just a warning, right? Because whenever anybody issues a warning, people start panicking. And the people on the <laughs> one side of the argument start to get very exercised about it, and people on the other side of the argument say, look, don't worry about it, it's not worth worrying about. He knows exactly what he's doing, unless he isn't as bright as I think he is, and I'm sure that's not the case. He knows what he's doing. He knows that he is crit being critical of the government for not organising this properly. Of course. And he knows... <laughs> He's making and he's making a huge yeah. stramash, if you'll pardon me using a Scottish word, over nothing really, because you can make this argument about almost anything. Well, you can, but the, he is rather cleverly, as you put it, having a bit of a dig at the government. And um, maybe one might assert quite rightly so, because it's affecting all industry. I mean, retail is at the front end of the issues around consumer confidence. And political uncertainty is a known impact on consumer confidence. It means that the general public don't spend money on non-essential non items. So things around furniture, home purchases and so on. You're already seeing the impact of that percolating through the high street. He's simply perhaps using this as a method to raise further concerns or to induce early stockpiling so that it doesn't impact his Christmas. Here's like a theory it. for you. When you say early stockpiling, what you mean is people spending more money at the summer months than they would otherwise yeah. do because that would be good for the Tesco bottom line. How about that as a piece of it's, commercial activism? Um, and for their supply chain so that it doesn't impact on Christmas sales. Because if you hit October the 31st and something happens or doesn't happen that you would expect, if you've now got a finite amount of cash in the bank as a consumer, what are you going to do? Stock up on food that you need every day, day in, day out, or buy frivolous items for Christmas? Well, you know, the obvious answer is if you're worried about money and you're worried about the outcome, you'll buy what you need day in, day out, not nonsensical items. Yes. There's no accounting for idiots that go around stockpiling <laughs> toilet rolls and tins of tomatoes. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense to anyone. Well, I don't think we're facing Armageddon, but prices could be... A, could be Thank God, quite. you're the voice of reason, Claire. <laughs> but, but, but prices could be affected. And for those people who are already struggling, it might be the case that every week between now and an answer... They buy just a little bit extra. So it won't be necessarily panic buying in the way that it's described in the news. It might be just, I need four tins a week, so I'm going to buy six this week, so I've got a couple put away to one side. And over time, because they're scared about the outcome. Now, that's affecting so much of the consumer spending. And beyond that, upstream of the retailers, the retailers are refusing to really move on anything. I work with retailers all the time. I propose improvement projects, efficiency projects, software that can help them get better. And they're all saying, we don't do anything until we know the outcome of Brexit. Not that we don't want to do something. We know we have to. We know we have to improve on X, Y, and Z. But I don't spend money until I know what happens. And that 
in a business-to-business environment, it's having an impact upwards of retailers on across a plethora of businesses. But when, I mean, when did we have this? When, when, when did we have this incredibly sort of immaculate business environment where everybody knew what was going on at all times and everybody knew what was about to happen uh, even before it did happen, and everybody knew that there was going to be a bit of instability next month because something was happening. But then the following month, they knew it was going to be fine because they'd already had it checked out by somebody with a crystal ball. I mean, for heaven's sake, we've always <laughs> lived in a world of change. Yeah. And quite frankly, I mean, we spent the first hour of this show today, Claire talking about obesity, right? Talking about precisely why so many people are eating so much food. And we all came to the conclusion there's too much food around, too much food <laughs> out there. So maybe what they should do is use this as an opportunity to slim down the supermarket operation instead of having well, 55... Of food, instead maybe. of having Well, maybe. Well, I'm, I'm not going to make a judgment on that because you can eat whatever you like. I, I'm not a fascist, right? If you want to <laughs> eat fatty foods, you go for it. Uh, help yourself. Have six milkshakes a day. I won't complain. But the bottom line is we don't need to have 50 55 different varieties of yoghurt, do we? Or 85 no. different kinds of butter or a million different kinds of tins of tomatoes that you have to work out by the kilogram because they market them differently and they price them differently and you have to go in there with an abacus and at least five computers to work out which tomatoes are actually the cheapest. Well, I, I am the one guilty of doing that. The thing is that that's what consumers expect. And, you know, you can say there's an element of consumer that sort of uh, almost walks on be like round a supermarket expecting to just pick up the same product for the same price week in, week out. And that's how they organise their lives. Mm. And actually, you, what you say is right to a point. There is that unknown uncertainty. So it's kind of now we know there's uncertainty. And the knowledge of an uncertainty is almost more threatening than the lack of knowledge of an uncertainty. I can't let you have In this a... conversation, Claire, without calling it a known <laughs> unknown. You've got to call it a known unknown. You have to. OK, it's a, and a known unknown. It's then. a known unknown. So we, know, we know that something is going to happen that will have an impact. When you don't know, you know that mostly the and retailers... That's, a, that's are an predicting. unknown unknown. Exactly. The unknown unknowns are less impactful because people can't panic about you something don't know. that they don't know. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Whereas now we And now know we don't know anything it's though. Causing, it's causing more stress <laughs> on these people because they know that something's going to happen. Whereas when they don't know when and they don't know what, they just have to cope and they pull out all the stops in, in a minor situation. Surely if you don't know what's not happening, situation. hang on, surely if you don't know what's not happening, you panic even more, don't you? Well, no, because well, that's, that's how Donald Rumsfeld ended up invading Iraq. I think that's what you call everyday doing business, is yes. not knowing what's going to happen. Exactly. Next. When there's this looming threat of something is definitely going to happen, or not. when and what, we don't know, but it's definitely going to happen at some point, I think that actually causes more uncertainty. And whilst I'm not convinced that the risk is any greater than the unknown unknown, as you put it, <laughs> it, ca it causes more consciousness of the problem and therefore people start to overthink it see, and start worrying this, about the situation. Do you see where this referendum has got us? And we're now actually talking nonsense on live radio. <laughs> I mean, you listen back to that, right? This is how business works, though, isn't it? Yeah. If you look at any... If you go back in time, any general election announced in the UK has caused a dip in consumer confidence. Political uncertainty is an absolute causal factor of a drop in retail spending and consumer confidence. But now we're talking about a much wider political uncertainty that says, well, will we even be able to buy the products that we all want to eat? And Joe Public simply just wants pasta sauce or whatever it may be, yeah. and they don't want to pay twice as much for it. 
And that's where it all begins to cause this... Listen, I've had a great idea. Because this show is all about... This show, Claire, as if you didn't know, is all about solutions, right? We provide yes. solutions to problems, OK? I've got a solution for all of this. Do you want to know what right. it is? You ready? Go on, then you give me yours. Cancel Christmas <laughs> this year. Just don't have it. No oh, Christmas yeah. this year. No Christmas. Christmas now, is hereby cancelled by the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Brexit has actually cancelled Christmas. What do you think? I might agree with you privately, but I'm not sure I'd do that publicly, although I just did. However, how about this one for a solution? Buy local. Buy what you can get from the ground in a farmer in your area. Go to farm shops. Stop worrying about Mm. tins and processed and stuff shipped in. If you're that concerned about what's going to happen to the supply chain of goods that 100 years ago would never have even been in the country, then maybe we should all have a think about shopping more local and working with our local producers, our local farmers and our local whoever they are, mm. to, to sort of maximise the benefit in the local economy until such time as we know what the outcome looks like. Very well Because said. that way, we're keeping the money circulating within the UK. We're not holding back. UK-based businesses are going to benefit from it. And then when we've got an answer to the Brexit, whatever it may be, we can start to decide where we spend again. Very well said, Claire. The most sensible uh, thing that's been said here for the last five minutes on Talk Radio. We say a lot of sensible things. Claire Bailey, retail expert there, uh, telling us why uh, the head of Tesco's is concerned about Brexit happening on October 31st. Or not happening on October 31st. This is getting totally and utterly ridiculous, isn't it? Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.